Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. So uh, this week I was reading a book called Sipping Salt Water. And this is where I stole this idea from. Now, water is life-giving, yes? We agree with that. So if I pour this nice cup of water, let's use the analogy that this cup of water is Jesus, okay? In John 4, Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pretend that's Jesus. Now let's pour another cup. Also looks like Jesus. What have I got in my hand here? All right, let's add some salt. Add some more salt. Just keep... Who wants to drink that? Come up and drink some salt water. Now, if you've been to the beach, what if you get hit by a wave and you swallow salt water? What's your immediate response? <coughs> Vomit. I remember one race I did. It was an ocean swim with a run. And as I was coming in, I had my mouth open, got this mouthful of seawater, but I was so keen to get to the finish line, I just kept running and got over the line and just vomited everywhere. And people are just like, that is disgusting. But that is what salt water does. But in this analogy here, the two cups look the same. The the cup that Jesus offers, it's like, okay, this is the living water that Jesus offers. This is the salt water, which perhaps looks better than Jesus, perhaps seems more appealing. But as you continue to guzzle on this salt water, it's going to make you sick. It's going to make you dehydrated. It's actually going to be life sapping. And this is what idols do to us. They don't give us life. They actually give us death. And in Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the first and second of the the famous Ten Commandments, this is what he is warning people about. Choose life, not death. Human beings, we are reflecting creatures. We are made in the image of God. And one commentator, Greg Beale, says that if we're, what we revere, we resemble. I love that. What we revere, i.e. what we worship, we resemble. And Beale's written a book called You Are What You Worship. So if you worship sex, money, yourself, whatever it may be, you start to reflect that. You start to image that. In Exodus chapter 20, it's what God is saying. He's like, I am the one and true God. You cannot put idols before me. So I'll read here again from Exodus 20, just to unpack some of this a bit more. So it begins here, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. Now we'll just pause there for a sec. Now in the ancient world, 
that's something radical. People worship multiple idols, or multiple gods, multiple idols. They, and every god was represented by some sort of image. What God is saying here is something unheard of. To, to worship Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, he doesn't have an image. He doesn't have a form. There's nothing in creation that can represent him. Hence why he remains invisible. You shall not bow down to them. This is verse from, from verse 5. It continues. You shall not bow down to, down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, oh, this is not particularly nice language, am a jealous God. Now, Shakespeare that said that jealousy, like a green-eyed monster, isn't it? When we associate with jealousy, we think of something deeply negative. If you have a jealous boyfriend, a jealous husband, we don't say it as a positive trait, do we? We say that as something terrible. Now, in Hebrew, it literally says, I love your God, am El, so that means God, Kana, El Kana, I am a jealous God. Now, jealousy can be translated in English multiple ways, zeal, rage, impassioned. Well, one commentator I was reading noted, El Kana, it's only, Kana is only used to describe God in this sense. All other words are jealousy with human jealousy, bad jealousy is described differently. This is something different. This is language of marriage. Now, I am married. Sorry, Rachel, I'll push you under. Oh, she's not in here. Good. I'm going to push you under the bus for a sec. So I'm married to Rachel. And if one day I find out that Rachel's been having an affair on me, and my response is, eh, I don't really care. What does that say about our marriage? It says I don't love her. It says I don't really care about her. If I'm happy with the idea of my wife committing adultery, or vice versa, if I'm committing adultery and her response is, I don't really care. Well, there's no love in that marriage. In marriage, there is something called a holy jealousy. You should be jealous for your spouse. You should be angry if your spouse is committing adultery. And what God is saying here is that he is jealous because he's like a husband. And the Israelites are his bride. And it's this holy jealousy like in marriage, not to oppress, not to choke them down, but to give them life. But what's interesting here is, and this is some other harsh language which might kind of raise our hairs up. It says, after I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, it's interesting there. You see that, you know, I punish the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generations. And there's a bit of debate about that. Some commentators think, oh, perhaps because there were three and four generations living under the one house, that they would be punished for that. Or some would see it, perhaps, it's a way of describing, because look at the time differences. Third and fourth generations, for those who hate, but a thousand for those who love. Now, three and four compared to a thousand? Isn't that really small? And so the idea is here, even in this jealousy of God, there's still mercy 
there's forgiveness. There is a small time of punishment compared to the large amount of grace and love that God shows to those who love him and keep his commandments. Friends, humans are reflecting creatures. Who do you reflect? Are you drinking that salt water, which looks really lovely and shiny and nice, that you think is going to give all your meaning in life? Or will you drink from the living water that Jesus offers? The Bible speaks a lot about idolatry. And I said in the pastor's desk that perhaps when we think of the word idolatry, it's a bit of an old-fashioned term. Probably not something you really hear in contemporary Australian language. Oh, he's an idolater. But perhaps we have that image of just that stone or wooden idol and people bowing down before it. But idolatry is insidious because it can be anything. It can even be something good. It doesn't have to be evil. You can make idols of your family, of your marriage, even the type of skin colour you have. Anything, anything in life can be an idol. And that's what's so dangerous about it, because you start putting things before God, you will start to reflect that. You will start to behave that way. In Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah gives this just wonderful, wonderful imagery of just the pointlessness of idols. So in Isaiah 44, it's like this parable of this blacksmith who goes out and builds this idol. And through the whole process of it, just to sort of highlight, like, this is ridiculous. And he says here from verse 9, he says, All who make idols are nothing. And the, tre- and, they tre- and the things they treasure are worthless. The word, all who make idols are nothing. In Hebrew, that language is tohu. And tohu means chaos, wilderness, or deep sea. Those that worship idols, it's like worshiping chaos. Instead of life being stabled and ordered, it's going to disintegrate. It will fall apart. And the things that you treasure, they're actually worthless. They have no profit. They have no merit. And Isaiah continues, those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen, such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. This is where Isaiah picks up on this parable of the blacksmith. The blacksmith takes a tool and works it in the coals. He shapes an idol with a hammer. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He rusts it out with chisels and makes it with a compass. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. The amount of work that goes into this, the amount of skill, the amount of effort that's needed. 
What's the point? Pouring all this time and energy into building something that requires so much human skill. And what do you get for it? And he continues. It's the same person. He cuts down cedars. Or perhaps a cypress or an oak. Doesn't matter what type of tree he gets. He still needs wood. He let it grow among the trees of the forest. Or planted a pine. And rain made it grow. It's used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire over it to prepare his meal. He roasts his meats and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm! I see this fire! From the rest he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to him and says, Saves me, you are my God. In that parable, he say, Hey, this is the ridiculous thing of it. This guy has to go out into the forest. He has to cut down these trees. Doesn't matter what type of tree it is. It's a tree that he probably didn't plant, that he didn't water, certainly. And there he takes half of it for that wood to make himself food so he can keep building this idol. The other half is used there to build this idol. He's just outlining how ridiculous this whole process is. And that's really the point of it. It's ridiculous. But the problem is we in the 21st century, we're far too sophisticated to bow down before an ancient idol. Instead, we worship things that are much more sophisticated. But nevertheless... They come at a cost. In his book, Hidden Idols, Timothy Keller says, there's really not much difference between ancient pagan rituals to appease the gods and modern pagan rituals to appease our modern gods. Perhaps we're not offering children up to Moloch in a child sacrifice. But how many parents have sacrificed their children? all their marriages in pursuit of a career. It's like, that's no different. You're still offering child sacrifices, just a different form. Perhaps we're not, you know, sacrificing to Artemis, a god of beauty. How many teenage girls will have their head over a toilet after eating a meal to try to have this perfect image? Or how many males who are insecure about the look of their body are pumping steroids into them to get huge and big? Maybe the gods have different names, different ways of approaching them. But all idols will suck life out of us. What's interesting in Isaiah 44, it goes into this detail of how this idol is built and how pointless it is. And if you jump to Exodus chapter 32, we're given another account. Probably the most famous idol that was built in all of the Bible, the golden calf. And so the ultimate irony is what we just read from Exodus chapter 20. That's the start of the covenant. There is Moses there in the mountain getting all the directives from God for how the Israelites are to live their life. And while that's happening... Let's go back to your knowledge of marriage. It's like they're on their honeymoon, and then the Israelites decide to cheat on their husband. And Exodus chapter 32, which is a very, very famous passage, 
you probably all know, I'll just read the first four verses. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us as this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they'd hand him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What the irony is about that narrative is that a few chapters earlier, Moses given, and you probably if you get to Exodus 25, Let's be honest, none of you are going to read it. But Yahweh gives Moses the blueprints to the tabernacle. The the very thing that the Israelites want, they go, hey, hey, we want someone to go before us. Where is this fellow Moses? Where is this Yahweh? Up in the mountain, God is actually giving Moses the directives to give them what they want. There's some few differences there between what the people built this gold bull and what God wanted for his people. Firstly, Yahweh said to Moses, hey, the people are to give an offering. They're to do it voluntarily from their heart. Instead here, they're ordered, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. God's demand things from us that aren't life-giving. The other thing too is, is that the, the tabernacle, this is why it's so boring and detailed, is that this is a painstaking job. The, these rites were to create heaven on earth. This wasn't just some random rush job that you just do. There's something about approaching God with time, with patience. It's a contrast here. They used to just fashion this golden bull idol. tabernacle was meant to be a new Eden, a new creation. You could say the golden calf, it's a new fall. And the irony is, is Yahweh had promised to give them all of this had they be patient. Perhaps at the center of our idols, it's fear. Fear for what we don't have. We, we try to seek significance and security It's something that only God offers. Now, it's really important that at the beginning of Exodus 20, Yahweh starts it off with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Simple question. Who was the one that saved the Israelites? God. God. Okay? God. That is always what you remember. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Go back to that. So if I brought you out of Egypt, if I was able to rescue you from the most powerful nation in the ancient world at that time and defeat Pharaoh, who himself saw himself as the embodiment of the Egyptian gods, if I did that with the ten plagues, with the crossing of the Red Sea, you know what's going to happen in the future when you're in the wilderness? I will be with you. It's that reminder. Never forget that. I am the one who rescued you. 
Israelites here, they're driven by fear. And the reason they build a bull, it's deliberate. Bull in the ancient world is a symbol of strength and fertility. So they wanted, if you're in the desert wandering around, you need food, you need water, you want some assurance of security. So instead of trusting the God who rescued them from Egypt, let's just trust this bull. Instead of drinking from the water that gives life, we're going to drink from salt water. That just brings death. Friends, as I said before, the irony is, is that when Yahweh and Moses were up chatting in the mountain, everything the Israelites wanted, God was going to provide it. And he would have had they been patient enough to wait. I said earlier that from that quote from Greg Beale, what we revere, we resemble. What we revere, we resemble. And it's interesting, ever since building the golden calf, the Israelites are known as a stiff-necked people. Have you seen a bull? Their necks are pretty stiff. Saying like, you guys are like this bull. You're exactly like it. You are resembling what you revere. And it's quite hilarious that when Moses comes down the mountain, it's really violent. He gets them and starts killing the Israelites and all that. But what he does to this calf is he grinds it up and throws it into the water. And he makes the Israelites drink it in a way of saying, hey, you wanted this bull to provide for you? Well, now it's going to provide for you. And it's going to taste horrendous. And just like drinking salt water will leave you dehydrated, no matter how much you drink this stuff, you're just going to die. That's the reality. This is not life-giving. It's life-sapping. And friends, I don't want to leave us on a down note. I want us to just be like, don't have idols and leave it there. There is hope. There is hope. And that hope is through Jesus. And as Jesus said that day to that woman at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus here offering this, he's offering a water to quench the thirst that we have. Deep down, all of us are looking for significance and security. It's just a basic human need. Where are we going to find it? The Bible repeatedly points us back to God. And perhaps at the moment, it may feel like, perhaps God's not the one who's brought you out of Egypt. Perhaps he isn't the one, you feel like he's taking you out of slavery. Perhaps there are other things that you feel like have rescued you. But time and time again, friends, it's why Jesus, at that moment at the well, this woman here is seeking her identity. And lots of husbands just living for herself. She came there of a physical need. She was looking to draw water from the well of Jacob. Jesus points her to something deeper. And friends, that same Jesus today is still pointing us to that same living water, 
so that we will never thirst again. So we don't need to find significance in security in anything else apart from him. Sometimes that's easier said than done. And if you read through the wilderness narratives, there are times of great difficulty. Where it seems like the Israelites are going to run out of food, they're going to run out of water. And that's a moment where they need to trust. And God's actually promised us multiple times, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And if you ever forget God's role in your life and the significance and the security and the meaning he gives you, go back to those words in Exodus. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the only one who can rescue you. And when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he brought us a new exodus. Not an exodus from Egypt and slavery. He brought us an exodus from the slavery of sin and death. As we just close this morning, if you are feeling challenged, you need just prayer to release the idols in your life, I encourage you to come up to the back corner for some prayer that God will just demolish those idols in your life, and that you can reflect his image and have the life that he wanted. As I said, all those who make idols are to who? Chaos, worthless, nothing. may seem like it's going to offer something, but really God is there. And when you demolish those idols, there is a freedom because you can live in the way that he created us to reflect the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. As we just stand here as a church congregation, I speak on all of us that we have put other gods before you. They may not be gods of wood and stone, maybe idols of our hearts. And Father, as Jesus told that woman that day, he offered the living water. We never thirst again. Lord, I pray that all of us can drink re- deeply from that water that you provide. Water that gives us the security and the significance that we're looking for. The water that will make us reflect the image of Jesus Christ more and more. And so, Lord, I just pray that we demolish the idols in our life. It is like drinking salt water. Lord, I pray that we can just live in the newness and the life that Jesus has come to do, to rescue us from slavery, from sin and death. I just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.